Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Game Grid Lehigh. Game Grid Lehigh is an amazing place to buy and sell Magic the Gathering singles. Whether you're building a new cube or crafting your new constructed deck, Game Grid Lehigh is the place to do it. Got a draft coming up with some friends? Buy some seal product here and get it quick. So click the referral link in the description to help out the show. And don't forget to use the code DRAFTPRO10 to get 10% off on your next order at gglehigh.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I'm going to be talking about White Black in Dominaria United. As always, the notes that I've taken for this episode are available patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes if you want to follow along. Let's get into it. So we've had, we being this podcast slash me, I guess, I've been following kind of this trend where the episodes have sort of like walked through my progression and evolution of priorities when I'm drafting. And white black isn't like the next big thing. Like, I don't know. I don't necessarily think that I'm like getting into a white black phase where I'm going to draft white black a lot. But I think that white black is an important option to understand and be aware of if you've been kind of in a similar space to me with similar priorities. Specifically, the way that I'm currently approaching the format is very much to start in the Esper space. And the reason for that is that I think blue is probably the strongest color and black plays really well with blue and I like a lot of the black cards also. And then Destroy Evil specifically I think is the most underrated common by a lot. And I basically want to be able to take advantage of almost every destroy evil I see, and I have to expect to be white to do that. And because it's so splashable, I kind of want to always be positioned to pick up the value that's available from getting late destroy evils. If I'm kind of like in this Esper mindset, one of the things that's really good for me to be able to account for is what happens when blue is cut. Because I think blue kind of seems to be the most popular and contested. And while I'm not super aware of kind of like the larger consensus in the community, I think that uh, there's kind of a big perception that blue is uh, a desirable color to be in, if not the strongest color. And it might be perceived as the strongest color. When you kind of start out somewhere in Esper and blue is not available, uh, sliding into just a smooth two color white black deck is a good place to be. Uh, I also think that white black is a good kind of like default to slide into in any draft where the lands are really highly contested and you're better off being in two colors. I think there's a lot of like power and synergy in white black. It gives you access to like good removal and reasonable card advantage and uh, synergies and stuff like that. I think white black is an important uh, tool to have at your disposal. White black has kind of a lot of inherent synergy there are a lot of cards that like make tokens, cards that pump your team, cards that reward you for having a lot of creatures in play, cards that let you like sacrifice creatures for value, cards that give you triggers when creatures die. One way or another, a large creature count coming into existence and then something happening with them. Either they attack for damage or they block or they get sacrificed or whatever. Black-white is good at doing things in that space. 
the important thing to understand and unpack there is that you can do a lot of different things in this space. And there are a lot of sets of cards that have overlapping synergies where like card A is good with card B and card C is good with one of them, but not the other, or like they're all good if you're pairing it with D, but not if you're pairing it with E. And what I mean is basically that there are kind of competing philosophies in terms of the large game, small game. Do I want objects in play or do I want like objects to die slash get out of play slash whatever? Like, and basically, where do I exist on the tempo to attrition spectrum? I don't talk about it all that often, I think, but I've talked about it a few times in the past that I think tempo and attrition are opposite ends of a spectrum. You can't really be both of them. Uh, tempo is about making the game about the amount of time that exists, the amount of mana that people are bottlenecked on, uh, like creating, you know, number of attack steps, number of turns, number of draws, number of untapped, like number of untapped lands, amount of total mana, constraining some access, some resource like that, making the game about that axis. Whereas attrition is about running the opponent out of uh, cards or uh, some like depleting some kind of uh, resource such that, you know, it, it's, it's not time, it's about objects. And some decks are called mid-range and they can kind of play either game. Generally, decks that are called aggro decks are more likely to be on the tempo end. Decks that are called control are more likely to be on the attrition end, but that doesn't really cover all the cases and it's not exactly that simple. In Dominaria, each color kind of has a thing that it's about. They're kind of best uh, exemplified by the common cost reduction cycle of creatures. Tolarian Terror tells you that blue is about instants and sorceries. Phalanx tells you that white is about having a lot of creatures in play. Necromass tells you that black is about the graveyard, etc. And so when you're drafting white-black, the question is, are you about what white's about, which is having a lot of creatures in play, which is playing a large game, which is more likely to be a tempo game? Or are you about what black is about, which is having creatures in the graveyard, which is more about playing a small game, which is more likely to be an attrition game? And that kind of informs when you make a token, are you trying to like hold on to that token, attack with that token, um, use it as part of maybe like a heroic charge kind of attack or use it to play Argivian Phalanx, pump your team with uh, maybe the, um, the three mana three two that can pump your team or any sort of similar effect. Or are you about, well, now I have this token. That means that I get to draw an extra card with my gibbering barricade. That means that I'm going to like draw into more tokens. Either of those plans works but you're going to have the most synergistic, powerful deck if you know what you're about. You obviously, like, you know, there are a lot of cards that straddle this line, like Argivian uh, Cavalier is like, well, I have two bodies, I have an actual creature card, 
If this trades off, it powers my Necromass. If it stays in play, it powers my Phalanx. And if your whole deck is just like creatures that make creatures and either of the like big things and whatever, you can exist in kind of the mid-range space where you adapt to the game that you're playing. But if you're really dedicated to one plan or the other, there are, I guess, some benefits for specialization. Um, and we can see some of that even in the data on 17 lands. Like one of the things that really stood out to me is that Argivian Phalanx doesn't have impressive stats overall, but it has really, really good stats among top players. And I think that that's just a matter of only some decks want to play Argivian Phalanx. Top players are putting it in the decks that are really taking advantage of it, whereas players as a whole are just, you know, playing it with, well, I'm a white and black deck with some creatures. I'm sure this will be fine. Incidentally, I noticed also another card that kind of spiked among top players was Battlefly Swarm, um, the one mana, one one flyer that you can get Death Touch for a black. I suspect that having the common playable one mana creature, which uh, is in short supply in this set, uh, plays really well with Argivian Phalanx. It's a way to um, accelerate that down, like getting a, a one mana cheap creature in play makes it a lot easier that you're going to, a lot more likely that you're going to get the Phalanx down in a way that's meaningfully tempo positive. And then there's other stuff like Captain's Call is good in some like white black decks and bad in others like and it's not even just captain's call is good if you're specifically trying to like play the white side of things and go wide it might be good in like the black attrition decks if you're like well this is three different objects that i can sack to my uh gibbering barricade that's going to be a lot of blockers a lot of card advantage but if you're like well i have three necromasses then you probably don't want Captain's Call to exist in like a creature slot that doesn't put a creature card in your deck, especially if you also have Eerie Soul Tender, where a lot of the cards in your deck are getting milled. And if you mill that, it really hurts you that you didn't mill a creature. So you need to really pay attention to the exact synergies between your cards. And there's not like a clear right answer for white-black. It's not like these are the good cards, these are the bad cards, or you're supposed to be this plan, you're supposed to be that plan. Um, there are times when kind of, there are sets that try to seed two different approaches to a color combination in. This happens a lot in like the guild sets where because like the Ravnica sets where because they focus on maybe three or four different color combinations and they need to support an entire limited environment, where there are only like three or four decks, they need to make sure that there's like an aggro and control build for each of them. And sometimes one of those is fake. Like the cards are just much worse in that color combination if you're trying to play a slow game than a fast game, so you play the fast game. Here, for whatever reason, I think that they really succeeded at creating this space where you can uh, focus on kind of any aspect of what these things might be doing and um it works well and you know you can you can also focus on oh i'm just gonna play the versatile cards i'm just gonna play or give in cavalier and phyrexian rager and like as long as i have that kind of thing my phalanx and my necromass are both going to be playable i might have like a little bit of each of those and I'm not going to have the really dedicated stuff like Captain's Call and Eerie Soul Tender and Gibbering Barricade. Like, 
you know, when when you're really focused, you can play Heroic Charge, arguably. Note, Heroic Charge has concerningly bad stats in white-black. I think you need to be extremely dedicated to the white side to consider playing it. And, like, if your deck has both a Heroic Charge and a Gibbering Barricade in it, there's probably something wrong here, right? Like, th those cards, there's a lot of tension um, between like a trumpet blast and a wall that wants you to like have fewer, like that gets rid of your creatures to do something productive. So as far as like navigating which of these decks you're supposed to be when and why, uh, some of it I think genuinely for a lot of players is going to come down to your play style, both in terms of like which kinds of things you're going to be drawn to and picks where it's similar, but also just literally how you're going to play the game. There are players who are more inclined or less inclined to trade, more or less inclined to uh, pay attention to pressuring the opponent's life total versus uh, like naturally focusing on card advantage and the different decks that you can have in this space are going to naturally play to like some of those tendencies and not others. So this is a an archetype or a set of archetypes where knowing yourself as a player and kind of following your natural tendencies and inclinations is probably going to be a good idea and going to like help you end up in somewhere that's going to be successful for you. But also you can often let the uh, uncommons that um, there are a lot of really powerful white and black uncommons and some, but not all of them clearly point in one direction more than the other direction. They're powerful enough that they can go anywhere. But for example, the knights, knight of dawns and dusks, whatever, the, the pump knights with a keyword and some life related ability are very good aggressive cards. They're gonna be good in any deck, but they're really good at getting persistent damage in starting early. They're both difficult to block. And Phyrexian Missionary is, you know, like you're happy to have a 2-3 life link creature in an aggro deck, but you get the most value out of it if you kick it and do the recursion thing. And it's kind of more naturally suited to a more of an attrition deck. So if you start, like, if the reason that you got into white-black is a knight, you're more likely to want to bias toward an aggressive deck, whereas if the reason you got into white-black is a Phyrexian Missionary, you're more likely to want to bias toward an attritive deck. Cult Conscript is kind of good either way, depending on how you're trying to use it. It's a 2-1 that gives you a slightly more persistent body. If you're aggressive, it's kind of like a value sack engine if you're attrition. Ellis, I think, similar situation where it's just kind of really good no matter what you're doing. Resolute Reinforcements, very much more on the white side, though, again... There's play there in the black direction. You know, if you have like bone splinters and stuff, resolute reinforcements is a good way to enable it. Bone splinters is another good example of something that like uses a token well, but you know, bone splinters makes a lot more sense in a deck with Necromast than it does in a deck with Argivian Phalanx. I don't have like a clear you should be this one. That's really my main point is this is tough to navigate very wobbly but you want to but this is what you should be thinking about when you're drafting white black is figuring out kind of your lane and strategy and your spot in the like aggro to control tempo to attrition spectrum which is really just about understanding your deck and its game plan and obviously that can morph 
throughout the draft. A lot of the cards, you know, a lot of the time you're just going to be taking the best white or black card you see. And the same way that like an early uncommon that pulls in one direction or another can bias you toward its direction, the same thing can happen later, um, especially if you get like a powerful rare. I'd say a powerful rare that pulls in one direction or another. Realistically, you know, the way that limited works, powerful rares just kind of naturally pull you a little bit more controlling because the longer the game is, the more likely you are to draw that bomb. And also, you know, especially when we're in this space where the attrition version has more like graveyard recursion, if you have a bomb, that graveyard recursion gets a lot better, right? So you could be drafting like the, you know, phalanx white aggressive version. And then if you get especially Shieldred, but also like Archangel of Wrath or something, you can say, oh, well, now I want to slow this down. I want to make sure that the game goes long enough that I can draw this. I want to prioritize Eerie Soul Tenders to find it and let me cast it again. And it's going to be very easy, um, even like first pick three, to kind of like morph your decks game plan to uh, build around that rare that you found. Whereas, you know, if in pack two, you open a less strong rare, like the Soldier Lord, that push you to want to be more aggressive it likes it if you have a lot of soldiers in play it makes them bigger better to attack with even if you haven't drawn it yet it's you know good to like you're more likely to want to just like not trade off your tokens because you'll get more value if you get to pump them first if you draw that lord you know pay attention to both having an idea about where your what your deck's plan is but also figuring out if that should change over the course of the draft and you want to, you know, be flexible. And there, there really are a lot of cards that are just, you know, generically functional that are going to work in any, in any version of this, notably, especially removal, but also, um, you know, like I talked about, just kind of the like solid two drops like Argivian Cavalier, or three drops like Argivian Cavalier and Phyrexian Rager. And Benelish Sleeper is a little bit more on the black side since it has that make the game smaller kicker. But the white deck can also just be happy to play a 3-2, a 3-1 for 2 as an aggressive creature and not really plan to kick it. Oh, as always, you know, side note, disclaimer, whatever. If you have Wingmantle Chaplain, this is a white deck. It's a white deck that can play Barricade. If you have Chaplain, you look for Shield Wall Sentinels. And obviously you can be a white-black defender deck if uh, that happens you know, nothing wrong with that. It totally fits the like go wide plan in a variety of ways. You know, if you have a chaplain, see everything else I've said about like defenders morph into taking full advantage of the chaplain in every way that you can. It can overlap with other stuff that's going on in white black. If you, you know, pivot late and keep most of whatever you were doing, that's fine. I feel like I don't know, frustrated that it seems like I couldn't get quite as detailed as I would like because like this this feels like it's been kind of very abstract in terms of like, oh, find a lane and figure it out. But I'm not really sure how to get quite more detailed than I have. So I'm going to turn this over to chat. If chat can help me kind of like drill into that that would be great also as always happy to answer any other questions anyone has as usual 
if you've said anything before, if it's still an open question that you have, be sure to put it into chat again. While I'm letting people think of and ask those questions, I want to thank the newest patrons of the podcast, Stav, Marius, John, and Avid Moondicer. Thank you very much for the support. If anyone else uh, listening is interested in supporting the prog- program, uh, getting access to notes, uh, weighing in on what I talk about in future episodes. I'm actually going to switch from here to putting up weekly polls about what I'll be covering next. I feel comfortable enough with the format as a whole that I can do that. Also, discounts for coaching and some other perks. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes to see what we offer there. So first question, my big question for White Black is, can it be successful without Ellis and or Aaron? Uh, yeah, I mean, so the easy, the, the easy answer is, well, you could always just have Wing Mantle Chaplain instead. But, I mean, similarly, you could just have Shield Raid, and it's better than either of those would be. I would note also that, like, Aaron doesn't have very good stats, and while I have seen it do good work in white-black, like, once or twice ever, I don't think it's really, like, a core component. So, I mean, I don't know. It, it, the The question is, like hard for me to really take seriously. There are a lot of powerful cards in Limited. There there are no decks outside of like defenders needing Chaplain that really rely on a single card because you could just have a different card that's comparably strong. How highly do you value taking black defenders if you aren't in a dedicated defender deck but are more white black mid-range? So I guess there's I want to unpack the idea of mid-range there. If by mid-range you mean genuinely in the middle of where white and black might be, um, and you're kind of trying to play a flexible game that can take advantage of like any of these cards, I wouldn't prioritize it very highly. If what you mean is control, but you don't like assigning the concept control to a deck without blue, then uh, I think that you can end up in some of the like more attrition-based strategies that value Gibbering Barricade pretty highly, even if they're not like doing the defender thing. And that would just be about, you know, if you're really prioritizing, like I have some tokens, token making that I'm using to draw cards and I'm playing a bunch of removal and I'm like waiting until I find some kind of bomb, then like Barricade can be pretty good in like the dedicated control version of White Black. Can you give your thoughts on Citizen's Arrest slash Binding? Yeah, I think that the only real like punish for them as removal is Destroy Evil. Destroy Evil is underplayed despite being like arguably the best common, I think pretty clearly the best common removal spell in the set, and has lots of other good targets. It's like a one-for-one, not a two-for-one, and it kills something unless it's ambushing you in combat. They're functional removal spells, and this is nothing like a pacifism kind of situation where your opponent can free their creature with an unsummon or a flicker, or it like fails to deal with the static text or uh, activated abilities. Like, they actually remove the creature. Oblivion Ring is generally a strong removal spell and limited, where Pacifism is a weak removal spell and limited. This is a format with a particularly high amount of recursion, which makes a- exiling rather than destroying creatures particularly valuable. Citizen's Arrest suffers from being a sorcery, which is often a problem with those. Binding doesn't suffer from that. So I think Binding is excellent. Citizen's Arrest, its biggest drawback outside of being a sorcery is costing double white, which 
Honestly, it makes it really appealing for this deck because it goes later and you can cast it pretty easily. I think Citizen's Arrest is a significant draw to this like archetype broadly. Being able to like actually use this like hard removal that goes kind of late, it's reasonably efficient because you can play the double late casting cost that a lot of other people can't is a nice draw to this. So I think that those are cards that you should be watching for and generally playing, but you don't need to take Citizen's Arrest in particular very highly. How good is the white, white, black? Uncommon, that's Aaron, that's the 3-3 three, three that you can spend a white and a black and sack a creature to, to tap it and sacrifice a creature to put plus one, plus one counters on all your creatures. I assume it's more of a black card than a white one. No, so I mean, it's not very good and it's more of a white card than a black card. The reason is that uh, while it does sacrifice a creature, which makes it look like a black card, the more important thing about it is that it needs a large game rather than a small game because it's only worth sacrificing the creature if you're getting a lot of counters out of it and you're only getting a lot of like counters equal to the creatures you have it's bad on a small board like if you have it and one other creature it's not very good whereas it's good on a wide board if you have 10 creatures it's awesome and so that's how you know it's very much more a white card than a black card outside of just looking at its casting cost is a little cheat there how does the wall theme and the fact that it's quite powerful affect the complexity of how best to play white black i assume when you say play you mean draft because by the time you're actually playing the games you kind of know if you're a wall deck or not and the complexity isn't really there you do the thing that you, the deck that you drafted does. As far as drafting it, I think, you know, when there's not a card for you, you should take Speculative Shield Wall Sentinels as always, especially when you're in white. But for the most part, you should just ignore the fact that they exist until you see a chaplain. And so I don't think it really makes things that much more complicated. Uh, if it's early and you are like positioned well and you're seeing walls table in a way that indicates that no one has a shield wall sentinel yet and you're thinking all right or no one has a chaplain yet rather and you're thinking all right if a chaplain gets open next to me it might get past me there's like a better than normal chance that i'll end up with chaplain and defenders maybe you want to like prioritize like a removal spell a little bit more highly than you normally would like maybe you'll take a citizen arrest over a phyrexian rager or something where you would have gone the other way if you weren't like trying to be open to defenders for the most part i think you should just not really think about the defender thing until you have a chaplain what are your thoughts about the amount of lands to take in different dark types uh, I feel like my flood has been excessive even with 17 lands i think that most versions of this deck, like I think that there are a lot of three drops that are pretty desirable. And there are also so few ones that I think it's hard to have a deck that's like happy to operate on two mana uh, for very long. So I think you need to be careful about going much below 17. And I think... You know, you can go lower if you have, like, a lot of ragers and, like, kind of a lower curve. But, yeah, I, I think for the most part this is going to be a 17-land deck, and I would look to have, you know, just, like, a little bit more up the curve, uh, more mana sinks, eerie soul tender, Phyrexian Warhorse-type cards to deal with flooding um, rather than feeling comfortable cutting lands most of the time. If you do happen to have like a lot of, you know, ones and twos somehow, you can go lower, but it, it's 
dicey off the top of my head with uh, kind of the cards that I think are most likely to end up here. What role do you think Take Up the Shield and Battle Rage Blessing play in either variant? I think because you don't really have Trample in this color combination that uh, Battle Rage Blessing isn't at its best. The most likely exception I can think of to that is if you had multiple of the Black Knights that have Menace, because Battle Rage is very good when you're double blocked. Uh, but for the most part, I would expect to be more interested in Take Up the Shield than Battle Rage Blessing. And I think Take Up the Shield has a lot of potential, especially with Phalanx and Necromass, either one. Um, notably, uh, I think a common situation that's going to come up is the Phalanx v. Talarian Terror matchup, where Take Up the Shield will work very well at letting your phalanx take down a Talarian Terror that would otherwise like dominate your board. So I, I think that like Take Up the Shield is a reasonable tool. It's better in the more white-leaning, more aggressive versions, especially if you're lower on removal, since you're more likely to need the trick to um, get through and... Uh, more likely to have enough creatures that you're happy to have a card that requires a creature in combat to be functional or in play in the case of just using it to counter a removal spell how much weight do you give recursion overall for both uh a lot more weight if i'm more in the black space than the white space and in general weight proportionate to my strongest cards noting again that strongest literally means high impact more than it means good because like Recurring efficient two mana creatures is not as strong as recurring, you know, like a high impact card like Necromass, even even though the two mana the efficient two mana creature like a knight might be a much stronger card. It's weaker in the less in the late game, so it's less powerful to recur. If you manage to be in the mid-range space and can flex in-game between tempo and attrition, how do you decide what your game plan will be for each game? How should your play change for each plan? In general, you would want to focus on tempo when you're the beatdown and attrition when you're the control. If you think that your opponent is trying to go under you, you're happier to trade and avoid taking damage and try to grind them out. If your opponent is trying to go over you, has a strong late game, you're more likely to need to kill them before that happens and to want to focus on going under them. Just kind of like be the opposite of what your opponent is being rather than being a bad version of what your opponent is when you're in the flex space is my best answer to how do you decide what your plan will be when you're uh, more kind of flexible and in the middle. Good question, by the way. I, I really like opportunities to speak to gameplay, and I think that that's one that's pretty, I don't know, clear and useful. Is there a place for the green-white queen in the big game version? Possibly. Yes. I mean, if you have a bunch of token making and your uh, strategy involves keeping your creatures in play, uh, she's going to be like large and synergistic and help make more things. That's a reasonable card to splash. Oh, that was actually a thing that I have some notes on that I forgot to talk about is just uh, the archetype can, of course, splash and pivot into various three-color decks. Mardu is more likely to be uh, aggressive and about tokens in general. Abzan is more likely to be about graveyard and recursion, but it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, the Green-White Queen is an example of a card that would push it the other way, and there are ways to be in kind of like a red-black base Mardu space that's more attrition-y. But I, I think that the, the tendencies are the way that I said, 
This is obviously a format with enough dual lands that kind of anything can splash. Uh, obviously, you know, typical rules apply. Splashing is harder the more aggressive you are, easier the longer the game you're planning to play is. How do the aggressive white-black decks close the game if the opponent starts to stabilize and heroic charge is bad? Phyrexian Warhorse can break through sometimes. One of the better answers is just, like, have some removal spells. Sometimes you're going to be in a spot where you have a bunch of stuff in play. Your opponent has, like, a big thing that's holding it off. If you draw your Destroy Evil or Citizens Arrest or Extinguish, you can kill the thing and make a big attack. Combat tricks uh, can also work here. Sometimes you're going to be in a spot where your creatures are too small for um, Take Up the Shield to give you a good attack but sometimes you won't be it's awkward that there's not really i mean so battle rage like the battle rage blessing i guess in addition to shining with tramplers also shines in a spot where you're like well i have a lot of one ones and two twos and my opponent might have a four four and take up the shield won't let me attack but battle rage blessing will like function as kind of a weak removal spell to let me attack still not what i would consider my like go-to strategy there um, the other answer, of course, uh, is evasion. If you have, uh, you know, if you can prioritize getting uh, some flyers, I don't like most of them very much, unfortunately, in white-black. Um, the, the, a lot of the flying commons just happen to have a pretty bad rate, sadly. But yeah, I, I think, you know, what you're... I think the default case that you're hoping for is uh, removal to stop your opponent from stabilizing. Would you play repossession without a green splash, or is it worth splashing green just for that? Really depends on how good the things you have to recur are, and how good you are at getting them into your graveyard. So like, if I have, you know, shielded Eerie Soul Tender, then maybe I'll play repossession, uh, but if I'm just getting commons back with it, then I would probably rather just play another common that I can cast without needing to like get back a thing. Is there a particular card slash color you're actively looking to splash in this archetype? Probably asked before I went back and spoke to that. Uh, can go wherever, um, you know, Bone Rattle is a good splash in any kind of like black recursion-y type deck. If you're in kind of the like wide aggressive space, you can splash the strike team, the 3-1 that makes the 2-1 one ones when you kick it, or like the red kicker on heroic charge, or any of that stuff, or just lightning strikes. Do you value bone splinters particularly in go-wide slash sack fodder decks, or in what situations do you value bone splinters more than usual? Bone splinters is much better when you're thinking of yourself as more of the like black deck than the white deck. It's a card that leads to small games, is a good way to like use token like to get an efficient hard removal spell if you can make tokens um or other things that you're happy to sacrifice like eerie salt tender uh but if i'm in kind of like the aggressive go wide space i would prefer to have something that doesn't work against my game plan as my removal spell focus on citizens rest and stuff instead if you're erring toward the black side of things is being on the draw ever a consideration being on the draw for me these days is never a consideration in any deck because I don't get the option, so I don't think about it because I'm playing best of one. But uh, yes, um, if you are playing a game where you get to decide if you're on the play or the draw, any sort of attrition deck is when I'm starting to think about what being on the draw. 
you're going to want to have um, cheap, efficient removal um, cut down. Destroy evil fits a little bit less here because it's not going to help you against like small aggressive creatures getting in early. But if you are a low curve attrition deck in particular, such that you're not worried about getting run over and you know that you're going to be able to like make the game about card quantity pretty early, uh, then choosing draw is very reasonable. Does this deck have issues with flyers? Say from blue-red, both the common and uncommon flyers don't seem too impressive. Yeah, sadly I did mention that the uh, flyers in white-black are mostly pretty bad. Battlefly Swarm is almost the most notable exception, which is not great, but it is a good answer to flyers if you're worried about your opponent attacking you with flyers. Uh, you know, I think, like, by nature of being a two-color deck in this format, and therefore like having untapped lands and then kind of like a slightly lower curve to go along with that, you're going to be like getting under people a lot in a way that, you know, you're not necessarily that worried about flyers because they're like if they're using fly flyers to block your non-flyers and then they trade, obviously it doesn't matter if they had flying. Of course, against a deck like Blue-Red, you're not, you know, necessarily getting under them the same way. And I would say that those are the matchups where Take Up the Shield really shines. A lot of the time, what you're going to have to do against Flyers, if you don't have removal for them, is to just race. And Take Up the Shield can swing the race in your favor in a pretty big way, in a way that can then force your opponent to, like, block with their Flyers and trade them with your attackers, rather than avoiding your, ignoring your attackers and winning in the air. So I would say, like, yes, uh, your inability to block flyers is going to be a thing that's happening and something to keep in mind and is one of the bigger reasons to play Take Up the Shield. Uh, and that, like, that's kind of your sneaky answer to flyers. In black-white, do you ever not take enchantment-based removal because of Destroy Evil? No, is basically the answer to that question. I guess... I still feel like Destroy Evil is somewhat underplayed, which I don't know if that's true. I, one of the stats that I would like, I, I mentioned this on stream, I think, in the last week, and uh, wanted to follow up suggesting this summon at 17 lands. I, I know I have some listeners there. Suggestion that would be great to add to 17 lands data is how often a card ends up in a main deck versus a sideboard when it's drafted. It would be really cool to be able to see what percent of destroy evils people end up playing and then you could see like oh how much should i be biasing my deck around this existing in the in people's decks i guess you can kind of look at that with number of games played but it's not quite the same for the most part i figure destroy evil is going to have a target regardless doesn't really matter play your removal it's just a one for one if they answer it but i think that Black-white can be in a space where you have nothing that gets hit by Destroy Evil. So like, if you don't have an Argivian Phalanx or a Necromass or a Barricade in your deck, then it's more reasonable to think, oh, wait, maybe I also shouldn't play any enchantment-based removal so that my opponent's de uh, Destroy Evils can be dead. Because if I play exactly one thing that it hits, now I'm like turning, my card, turning their card on in a way that's going to get me blown out. I think that that's something that I would think about a lot more in sideboarding than like in best of one um, or in building a main deck. But I do think I could imagine a spot where I would consider not playing an enchantment based removal because of destroy evil if and only if I literally had no creatures that destroy evil could hit. Once I'm in a space where destroy evil is going to be good against me one way or another, 
then I don't see it as a reason to avoid playing uh, enchantment-based removal. I think that's going to finish us off. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Thanks especially to people in chat uh, giving me some questions to help round this out and make sure I didn't forget anything or forgot less than I otherwise would have uh, to cover. As I mentioned earlier, next week I will be discussing an archetype as voted on by the patrons at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. And I'll be back then. Bye, everyone.